listening to the Carleton Political Science Podcast, brought to you by the Department of Political Science at Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. I'm Asif Me, one of the PhD students with the program. So this week, the highly anticipated film, the final film in the Star Wars saga, uh, The Rise of Skywalker, is released. And so because films are cultural texts, I thought it'd be a fun idea to approach the Star Wars movies using political theory uh, in order to just like gauge the mythology and what the films are actually trying to say. So this week on the podcast, we're joined by Jeremy Keats, one of the PhD students here at Carleton, a specialist in political theory. Jeremy, thanks for joining. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I love Star Wars and I can't wait to talk about it. Yeah, you guys can't see it, but we actually have a couple of Star Wars Lego figures uh, joining us for the recording. We got Luke, we got Ray, we got Kylo. We're ready to go. Ready to go. Yeah. So as I was saying, we've always viewed entertainment as being cultural texts, things Mm -hmm. that express and can explain a lot about the present as much as they are meant to be mass consumed bits of entertainment. And Star Wars being a longstanding franchise definitely falls into this category, you know, because it's it's there, it's it's ever present, it's always been present. When it comes to entertainment, mm-hmm. like how do you view it as a cultural text? Do you think there's something to be read in it? Yeah, I do. Uh, so I think s- what's interesting about Star Wars is it's one of those things that a lot of different people watch still. So for example, most TV shows are only watched by a small segment of a population. Whereas I find like things like Star Wars and even the Avengers movie, and we kind of saw this with Game of Thrones too, a lot of people get drawn into the conversation and it's meant to appeal to a wide audience. So it's still one of those things. But really, when it comes to political theory, there are two ways you can approach art. You can approach it in so far as what does this art say about certain ideas in political theory? So how can me watching this help me think about ideas in political theory? Or how can the ideas we talk about in class and deal with at the university, how can those ideas help us understand what the artist or uh, the director are trying to say? So this is the last of the franchise coming out, apparently. The previous film, uh, episode eight, The Last Jedi, Highly controversial in some Mm -hmm. ways because it presented a break from the series in some ways, which angered the masses. But other people saw with The Last Jedi something different, something unique, and something quite exciting Mm -hmm. as far as a big tentpole film goes. You watching The Last Jedi, not just as a fan, but as a political theorist, how did it connect to you? I think Ryan Johnson saw the problem of Star Wars, which is that most of the Star Wars movies are built on nostalgia. Mm -hmm. And you saw this explicitly in The Force Awakens, where their main objective is to blow up Starkiller Base. And the joke is made, but it's just a bigger Death Star. And that's really how the Star Wars movies function. And I think Brian Johnson, as a cultural person, saw it as his objective to, well, how do we break that mold? And in doing so, I think he offers a commentary about how we deal with history in politics and how do we deal with the myths that we all hold and that we all return to constantly in different contexts. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, which is a huge part of politics today. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can definitely go into just the Canadian context alone with, with the rise of neoconservatism, and it's all deeply steeped in nostalgia, this this way of the past that we've forgotten, we need to get back to, and apparently the way through it is questionable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not going to get into that here, but... Um, yeah, we can definitely see that just in films as well. Like, I mean, the biggest films are typically those that tickle that, that fancy of nostalgia yeah. that go back to something. Yeah, and you can see that uh, 
in the opening scene, right, of The Last Jedi, Rey is trying to hand off her lightsaber to Luke, the hero of the original trilogy. So we see this new character trying to abdicate her responsibility for doing anything new and novel in the series to the old tradition. And I think that scene really says something about what he's trying to do because in that scene, right, Luke just throws it over. Yeah, doesn't even skip a beat, just grabs it and throws it out. And then walks away, right? So it's how do we wrestle with uh, the history and the myths? Because Luke is really this uh, mythical character, not just in the universe, but also outside of the universe, right? In the 90s, in the video games, he was built up as this very hero who kept on being the touchstone hero. Mm-hmm. And so I think Ryan Johnson is at one point trying to say something within universe and also to the people watching the movie, but this isn't what we're used to. He's, we're doing something different here. I think Ryan Johnson saw it as you can't keep on going back to the past. You could see it as political movements. If we only return to the path in a nostalgia, we fail to encounter the new or the novel. So I think uh, one important person we see talking about this is Hannah Arendt. So she was a political theorist in the 20th century who was really trying to grapple with how do we encounter the novel. Specifically, she was writing about totalitarianism. And she kept on seeing a lot of people look to totalitarianism and be like, oh, this is just some older previous form of tyranny and they failed to encounter the new of what was particularly novel for her about this throughout her books she wrestles with the issues of judgment and thinking about the new and in what she suggests is that if you're going to appropriately encounter the novel and understand it you really have to encounter for what it is and not go back to these traditional touchstones so a big core part of it's actually breaking away from tradition, facing it, and Break, breaching away. Breaking away from the past. And I think we see this in The Last Jedi, where the final battle, the final encounter between Luke and Kylo, is on a planet of salt, where they've literally salted the Earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that ultimately is the whole thing, too, with, with Kylo kind of being like a legacy character as mm-hmm. well, an offshoot of Luke, but the failed version of it, so to speak. Yeah. Someone who's constantly you know, obsessed with his grandfather mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, uh, he's obsessed with his grandfather. We see that with Ray. She's obsessed with her past. And we are told throughout it that she has no past, that she's from nowhere. Well, that isn't quite true. But how do we wrestle with this, right? With someone who is a part of a long-standing tradition, Kylo Ren, and someone who is from nowhere. So it seems to be he's trying to play with this. Mm-hmm. And I think he comes to a kind of a middle ground in the movie Whereas he says, you can't just totally break away from the past. That's impossible to do. And we see this with political movements today, right? Political movements who are just trying to totally ditch everything and start anew. I think if we were to draw on a rent, she would say that's totally reckless. You can't do that. Because you have to be rooted in some history. You have to be rooted in something, but you can't be so rooted that you're drawn and sunken back into it. And that's all there is, yeah. Because we, we mentioned the sort of neoconservative movements, but even jihadism, it's the same thing, this return to the past, since the sixth century is being the only pure life. Yes, right. If you return, the search for purity is destructive in both ways. Destructive in totally breaking away and going towards some future utopia, or returning to some forgotten past that actually didn't exist. And we see this whenever Luke Skywalker is talking to Rey, right? One of the lessons is about uh, the pitfalls of a Jedi, right? He says, you imagine these Jedi to be some noble heroes. Well, in reality, they were very fallen. 
And I think that says something interesting. It's just so interesting to me because Star Wars is the ultimate nostalgia case. I know. Like the creation of the new film, the thing that I valued of it, it's like, oh, great. My niece and nephew Mm -hmm. get to have the same thing I had. They get to have that three film trilogy and grow up with it. You constantly have the release of, of cartoons and video games all grounded on a series that ended in 1983. I'm an old man. That's the year I was born. <laughs> like this stuff is obsessed with the past, yet there's this conceptual mm-hmm. thing here with Ryan Johnson attempting to break away from that, which is just ironic and also kind of hilarious yeah, in some I, ways. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. And I think one of the questions that's raised by the film is, is he successful mm-hmm. or does he fall back in? And that raises a question for us in politics, right? Which is, are we ever successful? Or do, or is it a constant fight of trying to avoid falling back into either nostalgia or hopeless utopianism, on the other hand? Well, it is funny because with this trilogy, as you mentioned, like The Force Awakens is essentially a new hope again, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This person from a desert planet who's thrust into this big battle mm-hmm. involving someone she might be related to who dresses in a dark cloak and a weird black mask. Yeah. It's the same thing. It's really interesting to me because like there is so much criticism that goes towards this new trilogy of just retelling the original trilogy. But we can see here like a really unique attempt to break away from this trilogy of tropes, really. So I think... I think you're totally right. But explicit in the movies, there is an attempt to break away. And I don't. And on one end, you could suggest that it's only marketing and that they're only trying to appeal at a very base level to new people who weren't taken up in the original trilogy. But another way, I think it shows a difference about how storytelling and how we uh, think about politics is evolving, right? In the original trilogy, you have the classic farm boy who is from nowhere, but we learn is actually tied into this very important family. So he's actually a somebody. And then you have Obi-Wan, you have Yoda, you have the classic villain and you have the princess and the smuggler, the wizards. You have all these classic trope characters. Whereas in the new trilogy, you have characters who are specifically trying to break that mold, right? Mm-hmm. Which I think says something about where we are today in politics. Yeah, and it's interesting that, unlike politics, it's the old characters, so they're kind of saying you have to break away. Exactly. You have Luke coming in and telling Ray explicitly, I am not it. You have to be the one. And we see this in the scene between them together, right? Where they have that fight in the middle of the movie. They have a fight. And the fight ends with Rey trying to hand Luke the lightsaber again. And Luke rejecting it. One question I think we are uh, bound to ask is, are the differences between the trilogy salient? Mm-hmm. And, do, and is that important for the overall message of the movies? Right? So I think... This is very interesting for how you analyze them as someone who is thinking about these broader ideas that are in our society, and especially, and you can tie this into other pieces of art, right? Is, are the differences between them salient enough, or are they only surface level? I think this comes into the question about Rey and her background. We are told in The Last Jedi, you're, from no, you're nobody, you're from nowhere. Whereas, is she from nowhere? Is she a nobody? There seems to be this point with maybe she is related to somebody. Uh, is that important for her in difference to Luke? That's the interesting thing, because with The Force Awakens, it seemed like she was that big character from somewhere tied to this family. Mm-hmm. And that was just completely dismantled. And now one can only look at the name, The Rise of Skywalker, to the, but the next one, this final one, like maybe they're going back to that. Maybe sort of tradition, that lineage. Yeah, story. yeah, yeah. And does that say something about 
how what we want and what do we want for art to say about politics or to say about our communities? Do we want characters who are new and awry and stand up for themselves? Or do we actually want politics? And we can see this with political leaders. Do we want the novel, the new person on the block? Or do we want someone who appeals to the old and is just a reincarnation of that? Yeah, and that appeal to the old, obviously, with populism, as mentioned before, this is incredibly salient in our times. And I find it really interesting because there is this additional irony that when you compare the Jedi to, say, the First Order or the Empire, these sorts of ideas are at play. You have the Jedi who are firmly rooted in natural tradition mm -hmm. in some ways, and whereas the First Order, this pseudo-fascist group, is very much borrowing from the ideology, the iconography of that classic fascist empire, mm -hmm. which is what it essentially was. It was an analog for bargain-based and fascism during yes. World War II. Yes, exactly. And I think uh, what's interesting... If we were to go back to the old, to the original trilogy for a moment, is that if we compare the Jedi and the Empire, we can see that there's that they're painted as stark differences. Mm -hmm. One is very technological, and the other, as you were saying, is very naturalistic and drawn into nature. Obi Wan is living off the land. He's a hermit in the in the original movie, and in the second movie, we're introduced to the Jedi Master who Luke doesn't originally recognize, remember. He he's looking for this grand hero, and he finds a little green alien who's living off the land. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's interesting, because like, you know, the Jedi, when George Lucas was, was creating sort of the mythology of it, he drew upon the life world. There's a great sense of Taoism there, samurai mm -hmm. cultures inherently in there as well. And yeah, as you said, like, this is contrasted with the Empire, which was just cold, stark, technological rational so i think an important person is martin heidegger he was again another 20th century author and he wrote a lot about uh, the problem of technology and how do we live in a technological world and he said that what is distinctive and dangerous about technology is that it's not just a thing technology isn't the things we use like your smartphone or your computer but it's actually a way of approaching the world around you so you can think about technology as a as a way you uh, see things, right? It's not the iPad or your cellular device. It's a way of seeing things. Technology is a way of framing the world. So you can imagine yourself, if you're walking through a forest, if you're thinking technologically, you would, th you would see the trees as just pieces of wood to be used as means to an end. And we can see this with the empire, I think, all the time, where they look at the world as something to be framed and controlled. Mm -hmm. And to have a planet, which can ultimately be a planet killer. Yes, exactly. Right. An entire technological planet that can control and dominate the other planets. And this is very central to Heidegger's notion of technology, is that he says it's all about domination and control of nature. It's all about the superiority of yourself over nature. To be contrasted again with the Jedi, who rooted in that in the natural world the mm -hmm. life world the polar opposite and it, it's interesting because yeah. even this plays into death right mm -hmm. with darth vader ultimately seeking to conquer death yes so in the prequels right anakin skywalker his main goal is to conquer death he sees his mother die in his arms and then he gets the vision of his wife who will die later and his extreme passion is to conquer death and he has a conversation with Yoda in the third movie about what is death and his fear of death. 
And Yoda says that it's just a natural passing and that we should be joyful for those who join the Force. And Anakin rejects that. He's rejecting nature. He wants to conquer death. And that's why he gets lured in by Sidious, right? Mm -hmm. Sidious offers him the promise of conquering death. And that's interesting is that the only way he can conquer death is by becoming technological, is by sacrificing all of his body to machine. Ultimately becoming far more machine than man. Exactly, as Obi-Wan says. But the irony then is the Jedi, right? Because death is a constant thing with Jedi. What we see is that they don't disappear, they become one with the universe. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's two different ways of approaching the world, right? It is one where you are a part of the world and you are a part of, as you said, the life world, right? Are we a part of this greater cosmology or do we see ourselves in an opposition to it as nature is something to be dominated and controlled? So going into this last one, The Rise of Skywalker, we see Ryan Johnson's out, J.J. Abrams back in, big blockbuster guy. What are you expecting with it? I don't know what to expect with it. Is he going to play back into the nostalgia again and going to go back into that problem? I'm just saying Sidious is in it. Sidious is in it, right? Darth Sidious is in it. We see He's the new big villain. Or is he actually going to take what Ryan Johnson left him and continue with that? Because I think in the last movie, Ryan Johnson left us two heroes who were supposed to be the villain and the hero, right? Ray and Kylo. There was not supposed to be a big bad above them. J.J. Abrams seems to be rejecting that and seems to be necessitating, no, no, you need this new, bigger bat. Kind of going back to that safe approach, because again, we always have to remind ourselves, this is Disney, right? This, this, is, is, this isn't the work of, of auteur directors. This is the work of Mickey Mouse. It's meant to be a safe investment yes. for the good return. Which is problematic because art, right, is supposed to be something you can think about and supposed to be a cultural touchstone for a lot of people, right? Think about how many people are going to go see this movie over Christmas break and the families are going to go see it. These stories that we tell and these characters that we look to are ideals that we look to in life to emulate. How many people, how many children look to Luke Skywalker and be like, I want to be like Luke or I want to be like Ray, right? So I think it's important to think about these ideas that we're trying to tell our children and tell and think about there is sort of an irony there which we can see in our own world that like there is this mythology where there is things to learn there are elements of honor and Taoism that we can draw from it but at the same time it is a commodity it is a commodity yeah it is a commodity and it's and it risks if you if you venerate it too much you risk not being able to tackle the problems of the world and actually be responsible to it this is another big point that a rent brings up is that to be a citizen of uh, a community is to actually be responsible for your community and be responsible for the world. She constantly talked about people like Adolf Eichmann, for instance, who abdicated their responsibility, abdicated their duty to think. She said that Eichmann was evil because he couldn't think for himself and became a part of these terrible events of the 20th century, right? So I think what is interesting about this is that At once, you need to venerate these ideals, but you can't let these ideals cloud over your own judgment and your own duty to think for yourself and to judge for yourself. To judge the text, to analyze it, critical engagement with it. We don't need a philosopher in every person, but we need someone who can critically engage or think for themselves. So this question, completely unrelated, it will be the last question, but what are you working on these days? 
So specifically, my work focuses on how do we make good judgments during periods of crisis? Because in periods of crisis, we are called upon to make good judgments. So again, drawing off the work of Arendt, she suggests that in times of crisis, the traditional ideals we look to fall apart in our hands. And we're called to look upon the world anew. So you can't look back. You need to judge for yourself. And I think in order to judge during these periods of crisis, you need courage. And that's what my work is currently trying to flesh out, is trying to think about what is courage. Is courage like a character virtue? Is courage something that we need education for? Is it an intellectual virtue? Because it's normally framed, right, as the virtue of this hero who goes off into the battlefield and wins glory for himself. But can courage be the virtue of an everyday citizen who in a liberal democracy actually sits at home and judges for themselves while they watch TV? That actually sounds really interesting. I can't wait to hear more about it. Thanks. And thank you for joining us here. This was a really great conversation. Yeah. We had it. I hope I hope to have it again. Yeah, I'm sure we will after the Rise of Skywalker comes <laughs> out, because why not? As everyone, thank you for listening. You can follow us on SoundCloud in the coming weeks, also on Spotify and iTunes. Till next time, take care. <laughs>